0: Okay let's get started. So I would like to welcome today Aritra Mitra who is a PhD student here at Purdue in the uh, Department of Electrical and Computer Engineering. Uh, So he works on um, designing distributed uh, algorithms for estimation, inference and learning, network control systems, and secure control. And he's here today to talk to us about a new approach to distributed hypothesis testing and non-Bayesian learning. So with that I'll leave it to you. Okay, uh, so uh, thank you for the introduction, and uh, so this is joint work with uh, my collaborator at Sandia National Labs, that's John Richards, and my advisor Shreya Sundaram. Okay, and so this is uh, part of what I've been working uh, in my PhD, and I mean, uh, so this is probably going to be an informal session. So please feel free to stop me in between, ask questions whenever you have any doubts. Okay, so. I thought I'd get started with maybe a cartoon illustration of what this problem looks like, and has have any of you seen this before? Maybe. Okay. So it's it's based on an old Indian parable, and it's called the blind men and the elephant. So what's happening over here is that you have six blind men, okay, and they're positioned at different parts of an elephant, and depending upon where they are, they're each hypothesizing regarding what the object is that they're in contact with. So for example, I mean, this guy is thinking it's a rope, some other guy on the other end is thinking it's a spear, and, but what you can see is that they all arrive at disparate conclusions. But the fact is that there is only one ground truth, that this object is an elephant. Okay, so the issue over here is that based on their limited information, none of them can unravel what the truth is. But presumably, if they all got together and exchanged information among themselves, they might have figured out what this object is. Okay, so our setting is somewhat related to this. So, like the men, the blind men in the previous slide, imagine you have a group of entities, network of entities, where these yellow dots are the entities, and they're interacting with each other over a directed graph. So, So, the black edges represent who can exchange information with whom. So, for example, in over here, this guy can send information to this guy, whereas between these two entities, they can each send information to the other. Okay, so you have a network of entities spread out over some network, and let's say you have m possible states. Okay, and we can you can call them hypotheses, you can call them possibilities, you can call them whatever you want. And the point is that there is only one true state. Okay, and we'll call that state the true state of the world. Now, depending upon what's true. Each entity is going to see a pattern of signals, some private signals, and the goal of these entities is to figure out what's the true state that's generating their signals. Okay, so that's basically the setting. But the challenge over here is the fact that, like the previous example that we saw in the previous slide, none of these entities, in general, have enough information to figure out what's true entirely on their own. So, for example, if you have let's say 100 hypotheses, maybe one agent at one corner of the network can tell you that, okay, it's not between 1 and 10. Some other guy at some other corner of the network can tell you, okay, it's not between 90 and 100. So, each one of them can reduce their uncertainty by a certain bit, but they cannot reduce their uncertainty entirely. Okay, So, what needs to happen is that there needs to be an exchange of information across the network, for each agent, to eventually figure out uniquely what's the true state. And why might we be we interested in this problem? It's because this has applications in a variety of settings. Okay, so you can think about these entities as individuals in a social network. So this platform might be, you know, I mean, Twitter, Facebook, or some other, you know, I mean, uh, social media platform. And maybe these entities are try- discussing on some day-to-day issue. So, for example, who do we vote for? what product do we buy which restaurant do we go to etc okay and so you can think about there's a true event that's taken place somewhere in the network somewhere in the world and each one of them are trying to figure out what that is and the private information that they get you can think of that as maybe local news channels you know twitter or some other uh, news agency and again what's what they need to do is that each one of them, looking at the piece of information that they have, they create certain beliefs about what's true and what's not. And when you talk to your neighbors or friends, your beliefs get shaped based on what they think is true and what they think is not true. And so the question is what happens when these agents interact? How do their beliefs evolve? And is it true that as the beliefs evolve, they progress towards, you know, I mean, uh, the, do the beliefs concentrate on the true quantity, on the true state? Yeah, and those, uh, there's no reason to restrict ourselves to just social networks. We can think about engineered systems where now these entities represent, let's say, a team of autonomous robots. And let's say that they've been deployed over some region. And the task is to figure out whether or not there's radiation leakage over the region. So in this case, M is 2. There are two possibilities either there is leakage or there is no leakage. So it's a binary hypothesis testing problem. And these agents are basically collaboratively exchanging information and trying to figure out which one of these is the true possibility okay and likewise you can also think about a statistical inference problem or a machine learning problem where you have m classes that can generate your data okay but your what you're trying to do is that your data might be high dimensional and your number of states might be very large so you might want to parallelize your computation across multiple processes. Okay so each processor is getting some data and the goal of these processors are to exchange information and figure out what's the true data generating class so you can think of this as a classification problem Okay so there's a variety of settings where this is applicable to Now so that's the key question so how should information be you know I mean diffused across the network how should we aggregate information so that each agent although they start out partially informative eventually are able to figure out what's the true quantity Okay, so is everyone more or less clear with the setting? Okay, now, you know, I mean, uh, the question is, why do we now care about security and resilience over here? Okay, and uh, I mean, I think most of you would have heard of fake news and false news and stuff like that, right? So then, the point over here is that let's say that there are some extremists or stubborn individuals who want to convince you of an alternate reality. Okay there's something true that's taken place but they want to convince you of something else because of their own agenda. Okay and you uh, know I mean it's exactly the sim- a similar setting where now some agents don't behave as they should do but they behave with selfish interests. Okay? And there's lots of work that's looked at this and for example this is a very recent uh, research that's conducted by researchers in MIT Media Lab and what they f- found out is that so this is empirical by the way. So they uh, took a lot of data from Twitter and they sort of analyzed that false data tends to spread much faster on Twitter than true data, true news. Okay, and so I'll just quote something from here because I think it's relevant. Falsehood diffused significantly farther, faster, deeper, and more broadly than the truth in all categories of information. Okay, so this is so this is exactly relevant to what the setting that we studied right now. So isn't sometimes uh, false news made so that just to spread and get popularity or something like that? So does this account for that bias? Because uh, No, so this is not exactly that. So this is saying that out of your many possibilities, whatever is true, you have certain entities that are trying to convince you of a different possibility. Okay. So there might be ways of you know formulating it as something that you're saying, hmm. but that's not exactly the same uh, situation over here. Okay, thank you. Okay so that's one of the reasons in the context of a social network why you might be interested in this but again for engineered settings you can think of these as faults you can think of these as attacks on certain parts of the network sensors etc okay so that's why we care about security and resilience in these settings okay so then let's uh, so this is basically the question that if you have misbehaving entities then how should you uh, process the information that you're getting you don't know who's bad who's good you don't know who's telling you uh, you know i mean factual information versus something that's uh, not true so then how do you process the information that you're getting from your neighbors and how do you look at the own information that you're getting the local information that you're getting combine them in a so in some way so that eventually you're still able to learn what's true okay so okay so then without further ado let's take a look at the setting in a more formal way as I said, we have m different states, we'll call them the m hypotheses labeled from 1 to m. Okay? Only one of them is the true state. We are going to call it the true state of the world and denoted by Theta star. Each agent in a network is going to receive certain private signals that I'm going to denote SIT. I is the index for the agent, T is the index for time because okay, so it's a stream of signals. And to make our lives easy, we'll assume that this stream of signals is iid, okay, independent and identically distributed. Now, for each hypothesis, we, each agent is going to have a likelihood function, a conditional likelihood function. What does this mean? So, what it means is that L i w i theta is essentially the probability that agent i sees the signal w i given that theta is the true state. and I'll make this precise with some examples. So it's basically a distribution over the signal space of the agent conditioned on each of these thetas, each of these states. So then what does an agent do? It has these conditional likelihood functions with it, and it has a belief factor. The belief is essentially a distribution over the hypothesis set. So initially, I'm clueless. I don't know what's true, what's false, so there are m possibilities. If I'm clueless, let's say I have a uniform distribution over the states, meaning that I have a 1 over m belief on everything else, on everything. Okay, that might be something that you might do. You might have some bias towards one, but let's say you have a 1 over m belief on uh, all of the states. What you want is that you want to recursively update your beliefs as a function of what you see and what your neighbors tell you, so that in the limit as time goes to infinity, your belief should concentrate entirely on the true state. Is that more or less clear to everyone? Do you have any questions? Okay. So this is, uh, and because this is a stochastic setting, the signals are random, so we'll think about convergence in some stochastic sense, but that's not really important. Okay. So this is exactly what we want. We want to come up with some sort of a belief update rule and exchange rule so that, that which guarantees that the beliefs of all the agents converge to one on the true state. Okay, so your belief on the true state should go to one, which basically means that your beliefs and everything else should go to zero, and almost surely basically means that this should happen with probability one. Okay, so that's the thing that we are saying over here. And uh, I mean, so this is not a new problem. I mean, because you know, I mean the setting is so widely relevant it's been looked at by several researchers across different fields so you have i mean you know people from ece computer science economists sociologists and a variety of other you know i mean groups of people who have looked at it so what we mainly propose is a learning rule that does not rely on belief averaging so what do i mean by that i'll make this precise again and typically what rules do is that i have some belief you have some belief let's average these Okay, let's average these and let's you know I mean think of that as a new belief. But what we will show is that these belief averaging rules can tend to slacken your process of learning. So if you average, it might be that you end up learning, but learning really slow. So there are better ways to do this which really give you faster learning rates. So with this new learning rule, what we basically show is that. It works under minimal requirements on the observation model and the network structure. So, clearly, you need some conditions to hold, right? So, for example, let's say you have a network where you have some informed agents at one corner, you have some non informed agents at some other corner, but there is no path linking them. So, then clearly, the non informative agents have no hope of getting information from the informative ones, right? so you need clearly some conditions on the network structure and you need some conditions on the observation model and so what we are saying is that the conditions under which our rule work are minimal so this is necessary and sufficient for any rule to work and secondly for the case where you have agents that act adversarially meaning that they don't behave as you would expect them to behave we show that there's a way to sort of extend this rule and come up with one that's computationally efficient, and it still allows all the good agents to learn what's true with probability one. Okay, and so you might ask, what is the model that we use for uh, you know I mean uh, modeling adversarial behavior? So it's a very general model known as the Byzantine adversarial model. So it basically got introduced by the con- uh, the computer science literature I mean uh, community in the 1980s, but you know I mean it's it's a very strong adversarial model which basically allows each adversarial agent to act arbitrarily. in the sense they can send you any information that they want. they can send different piece of information to different people. they can send they can choose not to send any information at all. So they you can have any adversarial behavior that you can think of it's incorporated by this model. And so then you can use that to model you know I mean stubborn agents or extremists in a social network. Or you can think of these as faults or attacks in an engineering system. Okay, and so and the final point is that as I said, with this new learning rule, you also get a strict improvement over the learning rate. So the learning rate is how fast you learn the truth. Okay, and uh, th- this is just a reference for the work. Um, I'll again come to it later in the talk. Okay, so let's so that we are all on the same page. Let's try and understand what is a likelihood model. Okay. So, let's suppose you are looking at just one single agent, and there are three possibilities, Theta 1, Theta 2, and Theta 3. Okay. So, then this matrix L is the likelihood matrix. and Let's say that the signal space of each agent is heads or tails. So, it only sees two signals, either a heads or a tails. Or you can think of this as seeing a 0 or a 1, just two signals. So, then each row is a conditional likelihood function. What the first row is telling you is that if Theta 1 were the true state, then this agent would see heads 75 percent of the time and tails 25 percent of the time. What the second row is telling you is that if Theta 2 were the true state, then this agent would see heads 50 percent of the time, tails 50 percent of the time. So, each row is a conditional distribution, and each column is basically telling you the probability of seeing the corresponding signal under that hypothesis okay so then what you can see from this is that regardless of whether theta 1 got realized or whether theta 3 got realized this agent would see 75% of the, would see heads 75% of the time and tails 25% of the time okay so if theta 1 were the true state if you look at the pattern of signals, then you'd see heads showing up roughly 75 times in 100 throws. Similarly, even if theta 3 got realized, and you run, ran this experiment for 100 iterations, you'd expect to see heads 75 times, right? So, in that sense, we'll basically say that these two hypotheses are observationally equivalent from the perspective of this agent. Okay, so so there is a way to make this more formal. And the idea behind that is that you basically look at some notion of distance between two distributions. Okay, so there are various ways to define distances between distributions, and this basically comes from information theory. We'll look at one that's relevant to our cause, it's basically known as the Kale divergence between two distributions. And essentially, what it's capturing is that let us say you have two distributions, you have data generated by distribution one, you have data generated by distribution two. You look at these data. Can you, can you, by looking at this data, tell that these data are coming from two different distributions? And to what extent are you able to tell that they're coming from different distributions? That's essentially the notion of a kale divergence. The large so it basically think of this as a black box. It takes in two distributions, spits out a number. The larger the number, the more your ability to tell them apart, the smaller this number, the less your ability to distinguish between them. Okay, so, the formula and everything else is irrelevant. Don't need to know, look at that. Okay, So, what are we interested in? We are interested in knowing, uh, and I mean given two distributions, what does it mean for the KL divergence to be zero between them? If the KL divergence is zero, then essentially you can't tell these two distributions apart. They're exactly the same to you. And if it's strictly positive, then you can tell. Apart these distributions, okay, and the thing the K L divergence is always non negative. So then using this concept, we can formally say when two states are observationally equivalent to an agent. So let's think about two possibilities theta m and theta n that belong to the space of thetas. And the corresponding likelihood models are li conditioned theta m, li condition theta n. so then if these two distributions have zero kl divergence between them then these two states are observationally equivalent from the perspective of this agent so this is basically the point of a kl divergence and we'll see this coming up later in the talk okay so then as i said i mean this is not a new topic of research there's been lots of work that's going, gone into this and so before i present to you what we do. It's instructive to sort of at least take a look at what others have done in the literature. Okay, so this is just a brief overview of what kind of rules existing in the uh, exist in the literature. Okay, so this model that we are studying was basically introduced in 2012. Uh, so it's it was it came out in a journal called GB Games and Economic Behavior. So as I said, it's been looked at by a wide array of uh, communities. Okay, so then what they s- said is that. If, so, this is basically an inference problem, right? You're seeing some signals you want to figure out what's the thing that's causing the signals that you're seeing. So, what's the standard paradigm for doing that? Bayes' rule, right? So, you see a signal, you ask yourself, what's the probability that I'm seeing the signal given Theta-1, given Theta-2, you have a prior, you look at a, get a new piece of information, create a posterior. The only difference over here is that you have a prior, but so do your neighbors in the graph, right? I have some beliefs, my neighbors have some beliefs. How do I take those beliefs and do something with it? So then, well, I mean, you might ask yourself, what do I do? Let's average, right? That seems like something that you might do. No, no reason for doing it, right? But that seems like uh, something that you might start off with. So then, they do exactly that. So let's say that what what is this? What's happening over here? So this is standard Bayes rule. So this notation over here is telling you mu it theta is the belief of agent i at time t on theta. So, you take your belief at time t, you multiply that with the likelihood of seeing the signal that you see at time t plus 1 okay, given theta, and then you create a posterior. But then what you do, you don't, you don't stop there, you take your own posterior and then basically combine it linearly with the priors of your neighbors. So essentially, you're taking a convex combination of your own posterior and the beliefs of your neighbors, or the priors of your neighbors at the previous time step. Alternatively, what you could have done is that you could have collected the beliefs of all your neighbors at time t, taken a linear average of them, thought of that as a prior, multiplied that with your likelihood, created a posterior. So essentially, you're doing linear averaging of beliefs over here, okay, to create a posterior at the next moment. So, then why stop there, right? I mean, if you can do linear averaging, let's do geometric averaging. So, that's something that other people uh, came up with. So, this is later work in 2016, 2017. And what they're doing over here is that, you collect all the beliefs of your neighbors in the graph. So, these are the people who can who we can talk to in the graph. You collect the beliefs of their neighbors, take a geometric average of these beliefs. So, the WIJ is essentially the Weight that the ith node places on the jth node. So this is how much importance I give to the jth node if I am the ith node. Okay, so these weights are essentially the, uh, the you know, I mean, when you're doing a geoma- weighted geometric averaging, these are the weights that show up in the weighted geometric average. So you take a weighted geometric average of the beliefs of your friends in the graph. Think of that as a prior. Multiply that with your likelihood. Create a posterior and the term in the denominator is just a normalization term your belief should add up to 1 right so you need to normalize it so that's what's happening in the denominator okay so what's common to both of these approaches is the fact that you either take a weighted linear average of your beliefs or you take a weighted geometric average of your beliefs and it was shown in both of these cases both of these rules work okay so both of these rules work in the sense that if you keep doing this repeatedly This creates a sequence, right? A sequence of beliefs indexed by time t. So, this both of these sequences are consistent in the sense that the beliefs would eventually converge to the true state in each of these cases. But what's different is the fact that in 1 you get faster convergence, in 1 you get a little slower convergence. So, geometric averaging gives you faster convergence, linear averaging gives you a little slower convergence. But the question is that you know i mean do we really need to do averaging for this problem and if you are interested in you know i mean distributed algorithms is a huge area right your problems like consensus distributed optimization estimation learning etc and the most common the simplest version of that is a consensus problem where you have lots of people in the room they each start out with some opinions you average and eventually want the opinions to converge the reason why you do averaging is the fact that if you can do this, then you can sort of relate it to the consensus problem. use tools that you have over there to you know I mean do your an analysis for this and you know I mean things sort of work out. And you'll see this is a common theme across optimization, consensus, uh, you know learning over networks. But the point that we are trying to make over here is that every problem is unique. And so, you need to sort of think about each problem and I mean uniquely. So, then what's sort of the problem with averaging? Let's say that you have two agents, okay, one and two. And you have two states, theta one and theta two. Let's say that the true state is theta one. Let's say that agent one is informative in the sense that if it gets enough signals, it will be able to tell that theta two is false and two is completely uninformative in the sense that its signals are useless. So, it's totally reliant on one to inform it about what's true and what's not. So, now let's suppose that at some point in time, agent one is getting informative signals. So, at some point, its belief on the false thing is really low. So, maybe it has a 0.1 belief on the false thing. Whereas agent two needs more convincing. So, its belief on the, false thing is pretty high, let's say it's 0.9. So, then what's the objective of agent one? It wants to drag down the belief of this uninformative agent on the on the false state. right? It wants to pull its belief down on the false state. But what happens if you average? Each of them end up with a 0.5 belief. So, then in the process of me, if I'm the informative agent, in the process of me trying to drag down the belief of an uninformative agent, My own belief on the false thing has gone up. Do you see what I'm saying? That's not what I want, right? I mean, so I should be able to convince you what's false without compromising my own ability to tell what's true and what's false. Here, I'm able to drag your belief down, but at the compromise of me uh, also putting my, you know, I mean, having a higher belief on the false thing. Eventually, this works, but what you will see is that you see oscillations. Because, you know, I mean, I'm trying to convince you of something, you're trying to convince me back, we are fighting because of the averaging, and our beliefs oscillate. And so, although we converge, it takes longer for us to converge. Does that intuitively sort of make sense? Okay, great. So, this is exactly what I just said. So, then the question is so, the point is that averaging can dilute the rate of learning. And can we? get rid of this effect. Okay. So, the first thing that we'll say is that, okay, I mean, let's forget about averaging. Let's go back to a standard Bayes rule. Okay. Let's think about the centralized case where you just have one agent in the graph. What do we know from Bayes rule? Let's first try and think about that. So, a Bayes rule is just this, right? I mean, let's say that you have just one agent, it's sequentially applying Bayes rule taking its belief on Theta at time t, multiplying it with the likelihood of seeing the signal that it sees at time t plus 1, creating a posterior. And this is a normalization term. What happens if an agent applies Bayes' rule? That's the first question. What happens is that if the state Theta is not observationally equivalent to Theta star, which means that this agent can tell the difference between the true state Theta star and Theta, then its belief on this false state theta is going to go to 0. That's just a property of a Bayes rule, you can prove it, it's, a, it's not that hard to prove. You can prove that the belief of this agent on this theta is going to go to 0. Whereas if it cannot tell the difference between theta star and theta, then its belief on this false state theta is forever going to remain bounded away from 0. So, if you can tell the difference between what's true and what's false, then your belief on what's false is going to go to zero. If you can't tell the difference, then you will have a non-zero belief in the limit on the false state. But what's important to note over here is that each agent looking at just its own signals can potentially eliminate a certain subset of the hypothesis that it can eliminate on its own. I may not be able to eliminate everything but I'll still be able to eliminate let's say something, right? I mean, maybe I'm able to eliminate a subset of the states. That's the key point over here. And just to make this precise, if we go back to the example that we saw earlier, you can see that this agent can't tell the difference between Theta 1 and Theta 3, right? So, then let's say if Theta 1 is the true state, then what's going to happen is that um, its belief on Theta 2 will go to zero, because it can tell the difference between Theta 1 and Theta 2 but in the limit it's going to be confused between theta 1 and theta 3 because they are observationally equivalent to it right so it will basically have a 0.5 belief on each of them in the true in the limit but what's what we should note over here is that nonetheless it's still able to eliminate one of these and the question is how can we leverage that to our advantage do you have any guesses regarding what we are going to do So the idea is that, okay, let's say that you have two belief vectors side by side. You know that there's going to be a zero on one of these entries eventually, corresponding to one agent being able to eliminate that hypothesis eventually. What do I do to propagate that zero from my belief to someone else's belief? Why don't I take the min of the beliefs? So if one of them is going to zero, it has to drag down the belief of the other one to zero as well. So, what you want to do is that there's a little trick over here where we want to first ensure that whatever I can do on my own, I retain my ability to do that. How do I do that? I maintain a local belief vector. What do I mean by local? This is updated without any neighboring influence. So, this is purely based on the signals that I see, and it's not contaminated by anyone in the network. I'm not talking to anyone else in the network when I'm updating this local belief. So what that means is that if I'm able to eliminate something on my own, that's going to show up in the local belief factor. I'll be getting certain zeros for those entries in my local belief factor. And then there are certain things I can't tell on my own. And so then I need to talk to my neighbors in the graph, right? So that's going to be captured through an actual belief. So this is a corrected version of the local belief, let's say so, what do I do to maintain to update my belief on a certain state in this vector? I take the minimum of my own local belief on it, and the actual beliefs of my neighbors on it. Okay, so, let, let, I'll again explain that uh, in a bit. Okay, so, basically, you take the minimum of your own local belief on something, and the actual beliefs that you get from your neighbors. So, let's make this precise. So, there are two steps. At each time step t, an agent is going to update its belief on a state theta as follows. There are two steps. In the first step, it creates a local copy, a local belief based on exactly the same Bayes rule that we saw. And notice that there is no influence of the network over here. Okay. So, in the next step, what it does is that this actual belief on theta is nothing but the minimum of its own local belief on it and the actual beliefs of its neighbors. So, let's see why this might work. So, let's say for every false hypothesis, there is at least one agent in the network who can tell that it's false. If not, then the entire network remains confused regarding that state. So, for every false state, you need at least someone in the network at some fringe, at some corner to be able to tell you that that's false. Think about that node. For that node, its belief, local belief is going to be going to zero because it can tell that theta is false, some state theta is false. If its local belief is going to zero, regardless of what its neighbors are telling it, because they have a min over here, if this goes to zero, regardless of what this is, your neighbors can have very high beliefs on this false thing. But because this is going to zero, it's going to drag your own belief on this thing to go to zero as well. So if you can do something on your own, when you talk to your neighbors in the graph you don't lose your ability to do this that thing right so next what you want is that okay my actual beliefs are going to go to zero on this i want my neighbors beliefs on this to go to zero as well but that's going to happen as well right so think about the immediate neighbors of this node when they update this quantity this belief is going to show up in their update rule right so then if this is going to go to zero for one of their neighbors, it's going to drag down the beliefs of their neighbors as well. Right? So, when my neighbor updates, my belief, uh, updates its belief on a certain state, it's going to use my belief. Because my belief is going to zero and it's doing this min thing, it, my belief is going to show up over here. And because this is going to zero, it's going to drag down the belief of my neighbor as well. And when its belief goes to zero, it's going to drag down the beliefs of its neighbors as well. And so, this creates a process of cascading beliefs on on each false state. But you might ask the question that can't this happen with the true state as well? Could it be that because this is a random process, during some transient phase, you see bad signals. And because you see bad signals, your belief on the true thing temporarily goes down. As soon as it goes down, someone is taking a min with respect to that, that drags, their belief on the true thing to go down as well. Can it create a cascade of low beliefs on the true state? If it did, then this would not work. right? So, the answer is basically no. You can prove that with probability one, the beliefs of all the agents on the true state are eventually going to remain lower bounded by some quantity. Why is that the case? The reason behind that is that the Bayes rule helps to eliminate false hypothesis, But if you can't tell that something is false, it's not going to place a zero belief on it. So, if you can tell something is false, it's going to place a zero belief on it. If you can't tell something is false, it's never going to place a zero belief on it, if you start out with a non-zero belief on it. So, then at some point, the local beliefs of all the agents on the true thing are never going to go to zero. They're going to be some quantity. Maybe if there are 100 states, and you know I mean, I can eliminate fifty of them then my the my belief on the true thing is within the other fifty right it's never going to place a zero belief on any one of those fifty states. so my belief on the true thing never goes to zero for in the local belief vector so then what is it that's going to drag this down at some point? this quantity is eventually going to be lower bounded by something for all the agents in the network as soon as that happens. This will sort of also, uh, you know, I mean, stop decreasing, because there is no cause for this guy to reduce its belief. The cause is encoded over here, which is coming from the signals. If the signals don't cause your cause you to reduce your local beliefs, this stops decreasing, and then this also stops decreasing, basically, at some point. Okay, and there's, a, I mean, this is just an informal argument, but there's a way to make this mathematically precise. But is everyone sort of sort of convinced about why this might work? So, this is preserving the intrinsic discriminatory capabilities of an agent. So, whatever this agent could do on its own, it's preserving its ability to do so. Whereas this is enabling you to facilitate, I mean it's facilitating propagation of low beliefs in the false hypothesis. Okay, so basically, this is saying that you know, for each hypothesis, just listen to the neighbor who has the lowest belief on that hypothesis. So, okay, in the interest of time, I'm going to skip this example. I'll I might come back to it if there's time left. Uh, So the main result over here is that you know, I mean, under very standard assumptions. So what are these assumptions? Uh, The first one is telling you that for every pair of hypotheses. You need at least one agent in the graph who can tell them apart. So for every pair, you need at least one agent who can distinguish between them. You need some notion of connectivity, which basically says that between every pair of agents, you need a path connecting them. And then what this is saying is that you need to start out with non-zero beliefs on each state. You can have a, you can start out with a very very low belief on the true state, but as long as that's non-zero, that's good enough and given that what we can show is that for every false hypothesis this quantity is essentially the rate at which your belief on this false thing is going down it's an exponential decay and this quantity is essentially the exponent of decay so this is so if you have a e to the power minus alpha t decay for theta this is alpha okay and that exponent is in general a function of time this is saying that eventually everyone in the network will be able to eliminate Theta at a rate, that's at least the best KL divergence across the graph. So, this quantity is the discriminatory power of agent V between these two states. You look at all the agents in the graph and the discriminatory powers, take the max and that's the rate that at which you will be able to eliminate the state Theta. Okay, So, whatever is the best rate across the graph, all agents will be able to eliminate each false state theta at that rate. And So, how does this compare with existing approaches? If you do averaging, you get an average of the rates. Where the the weights that show up in the average are essentially uh, something known as the centrality of an agent. So, the centrality of an agent can be sort of, you can think of it as like who's influential in the network. So, if I have a lot of friends, I might be very influential. Okay, So, what happens over here is that the rate at which you reject a th- state theta is a convex combination of how informative am-, am I and a function of how influential am I. If I'm very informative as captured by Ki and I'm very influential as captured by Vi, then there's going to be a positive matching between these two quantities and I'll be really able to create an impact in the graph. But you can imagine if you have a reverse matching, the most informative agents are the least central. So, they are you know, I mean the least influential people in the graph, then your rate of convergence will really be slow. What our result is saying is that it doesn't depend on the network size nor the network structure. So, that doesn't show up at all. Okay. So, it's saying that no matter how you allocate your information across the graph, no matter what the size of your graph is, you'll still get the same rate which will be the best rate at which you could uh, eliminate these theta's so a quick example let's say you have like a star graph on n nodes okay the node at the center is the only node who can who's getting informative signals and you have two states let's say theta1 and theta2 so then uh, what this is saying is that this is just a comparison and the true state is theta2 so then this is comparing our rule in orange with the linear rule in green and the log linear ra- rule in blue. The case on top is when you have 5 agents on the graph and you can see that the beliefs of I'm plotting the beliefs of agent 3 on the true state theta 2 and you can see that the orange converges faster. And if you plot the convergence rates it's essentially you know I mean the black line is what we expect it to be in the limit and this is sort of hovering around there. Whereas for the other two rules, the rate gets scaled by the size of the network. So if you have a really large number of nodes in the graph, it's going to really bring down your rate of convergence. So in this case, you have n equal to 10. It, you know, I mean, the rate of convergence from this has gone down, whereas it's the same for our rule. Okay, So this quantity is essentially the exponent of decay. This is what we expect it to be in the limit for our rule, and this is what we expect it to be for the other two rules. So what this is saying is that learning rate is going to scale inversely with the size of the network for the existing rules, but it remains the same for this rule. Okay, so now let's move quickly to the case where you have miscreants in the network. You have people who are spreading misinformation, and uh, you know, I mean, as I said, I mean, like this is uh, uh, any rule that you can think of is sort of going to break down because of this one. So, so, you need to incorporate some resiliency into your algorithms if you want to take care of, uh, if you want to account for these attacks. Okay, So, then the model that we're going to look at is something known as the Byzantine attack model, okay, where we'll assume that an adversary has complete knowledge of the system, the network, etc., and it can act arbitrarily. But we need to place some assumptions. So, we'll say that it's an F-local model, meaning that, in the neighborhood of any good node you can have at most f bad guys okay so in everyone's neighborhood you can have if you think about any good node in the graph it will have at most f bad guys in its neighborhood but you don't know who they are and they can do anything that they want to okay, and let's denote the set of good nodes by r and the question is and what do we do so there are two things that we need for this to work Essentially, you need redundancy in the communication structure, you need redundancy in the information structure. So, what do I mean by that? Let's say you have a lot of informative agents and some uninformative agents over here. You need to disseminate information from these guys to these people. But imagine that they're going through a bottleneck in the graph. and Those are precisely the nodes that get compromised by the adversaries. So then you can never sort of transmit information securely from these guys to these guys because the nodes in the in between sort of act as a bottleneck or a cut in the graph. So you need enough disjoint paths linking the informative agents to the uninformative agents. So that's communication redundancy. At the same time you need information redundancy. Why? Because if you have too few informative people and those are precisely the nodes that get compromised then you have no hope of learning, even if you have multiple paths across the graph. So, you need both of these quantities. So, then uh, we introduced a graph property which, again, I'm not going to go into, and uh, the point is that if this graph has this property, then the algorithm that I'm going to show now is going to work. And The algorithm is, again, very simple. Again, each node is going to run a local belief vector as it did before. But now, the question is that, it knows that some people in its neighborhood might be bad. It doesn't know who's good, who's bad. So, what it does is that if it has very few neighbors, so if, it, if the size of its neighbor set is smaller than 2F plus 1, where F is the maximum number of bad guys in its neighborhood, it's not going to trust anyone then. So, it's saying that if I have too few neighbors, I'm not going to listen to anyone. My actual belief is just going to be my local belief. I'm not going to pay attention to anyone in the graph. But if it does have greater than two f plus one neighbors, then it's going to collect the beliefs of its neighbors. It's going to throw away the highest f beliefs, the lowest f beliefs, take the rest of them, and then do the min operation over this reduced set of uh, beliefs. So earlier, it was doing this min with respect to the beliefs of all the agents in the neighborhood of this agent. Now, it takes only the ones that are the most moderate. It throws away extreme beliefs, collects the moderate ones, pu- puts them inside the set, and then takes the same thing that it did before, but this min is now over the smaller set. So it's a fairly intuitive thing to be doing, right? You reject extreme beliefs, take the moderate ones, do whatever you know whatever you were doing before. And again, we show that you know I mean if the graph has some property. So, it's a combination of the two things that I said. The property encapsulates redundancy in communication structure and redundancy in the information structure. And that's something that we call strong robustness basically. If that's true and each good node in the graph starts out with a non-zero belief, then every good node will eventually learn what's true. Note that we place no conditions on the beliefs of the bad nodes. So, if you we were doing exactly what we did before, it's very easy to break this algorithm right? What would a bad node do? It would immediately place a zero belief on the true thing as soon as you take mins a zero belief on the true will eventually lead to zero beliefs for everyone else. so your bad guys can be crazy. they can put zero beliefs on the true thing they can do whatever they want but the point the fact that you're sort of uh, you know i mean throwing away the extreme beliefs and then doing this min operation helps you i mean so that's still. Uh, enables you to learn, provided you have this graph condition satisfied okay and uh, this is a stronger condition than just saying that I have two f plus one people in my neighborhood because you might think that if I have five bad guys, I need at least six good guys right so there needs to be a veto sort of a thing but that's not this graph condition is not just that it 's a stronger condition than just having two f plus one in degree degree. Okay, so, that's essentially the point, and you know this graph property is not a terrible property. It can be checked in polynomial time. So, you can take a network, you can see if this network has this property. If it does, then this rule is going to work. Okay, So, that's sort of the take-home message. Um, okay. So, maybe I'll just take a couple of minutes to explain the simulation slide that I, how much time do I have? Uh, um, not a whole lot. Yeah. Not a whole lot? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay, then I can probably maybe skip this, I guess. So it's just a video of you know some ro- you know I mean robots moving around and simulation and how their beliefs evolve over time. So I can, I can, can skip this maybe. Uh, so yeah, I mean the take-home uh, message is essentially the fact that wait, um, yeah. So we proposed this new learning rule. We showed that it. Uh, allows you to learn things really fast, and the way it's different from existing rules is that it doesn't average, it does a min, and we showed that the advantage of doing this sort of a thing is that not only do you get fast learning rates, you can easily modify it to account for adversities in the graph, adversities in the network. Okay, So, that's essentially what I have, and then there are lots of potential for ongoing work. You can think about um, uh, when two people are talking over a network, you might have that the link that you're using has limited bandwidth. So then you can't send out information in the, uh, you know, I mean it's in its proper form, in the in the with high fidelity. So then, at what data rates do you need to transmit this information so that you can still do this, uh, you know, perform the uh, this inference task with certain level of accuracy? Okay, so that's sort of like a communication efficient. Uh, thing and then you can have uncertainty is in your model right so do i know my likelihood models uh, functions exactly or do i know that you know i mean there's somewhere around some ball centered at some nominal uh, likelihood function so there might be uncertainties in the likelihood models so that again might be something that is potentially interesting okay and so with that i'll conclude and yeah if you have any questions please feel free to ask me Uh, So uh, when you said, like, for example, if you have rogue agents in the network, Mm -hmm. uh, and a lot of them have zero values, Mm -hmm. if you take the minimum value, it won't, uh, your beliefs tend to go to zero. In that case, you were telling that you uh, remove the extreme values and Mm -hmm. take the moderate values, right? So isn't that similar to averaging then? If you remove the outliers and take... But uh, uh, after you remove the extreme values, Mm -hmm. you're not taking an average of the rest. Right. What? So after you remove the outliers, what do you do after that? Do you average or do you do something else? Mm-hmm. So we're saying that even after you remove the outliers, okay. right, you're not taking an average of the remaining values. Okay. You're still using the same algorithm as before. Mm-hmm. Earlier, you were taking a min over all the beliefs over your neighborhood. Now you're taking a belief over only the beliefs that lie in this moderate set after you've rejected the outliers. Okay. You could have alternately taken an average, mm-hmm. which would have then brought you back to the existing rules. Right, Mm -hmm. But we're not doing that because it's not clear if you throw out the outliers and take an average, whether that's going to lead you to convergence. Mm -hmm. Whereas with this, it's easy to prove that if you do the same thing that we were doing before, but on a reduced set, instead of taking the min over the entire neighborhood set, take a min over just, you know, I mean, the moderate set, basically. The set of neighbors who have moderate beliefs. Mm -hmm. That gives you convergence. It's not clear if you do averaging whether you still get convergence uh, after you've thrown out the outliers. All right. Thank you.